Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWendelik.com podcast. In this podcast, we keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Drew Freeman and Nishant Shrivasta. Thanks, Ray. This is the RayWendelik.com podcast. Welcome to episode seven for season 11. This episode was recorded on Saturday, the 13th of February, 2021, for release on the 3rd of March. This episode is sponsored by the Language Metapod and by the number Q. I am Drew Freeman with my Google Doc literate co-host Nishant Srivasta. Thanks, Drew. This time we have with us Corey Lepislaw, who also contributed to the book Living by the Code, and is the head of engineering at Ken Plus Kata Create. She's also a former GD and a GDG organizer. Corey, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It is great to have you. Um, I really... I, I, I don't want to sound like I say this every episode, but I really enjoyed your chapter because of all of the creativity. I was a theater and speech major, so a lot of the creativity, a lot of the comments on public speaking really resonated with me. And I'm looking forward to to diving in deeper with that for you. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that's uh, Creativity has been one of the core organizing principles of my life for the last few years, and I, I tend to make as much space as possible for it in my day-to-day life. Now, you're based in London, is that correct? Yep. Uh, I've been here for nearly three years now. Are you originally from the States? Oh, yeah, definitely. So uh, from Florida, spent some time in Tennessee, London, sorry, uh, Philly, and San Francisco. Oh, I miss Philly. I, I was raised in eastern Pennsylvania. Yeah, but it has a special place in my heart for sure. Were you in Philly or were you uh, yeah. in the periphery? No, South Philly, uh, mostly <sighs> a little bit of graduate hospital, but yeah. Oh yeah. South Philly is real Philly. <laughs> yeah. Not to say the rest of Philly isn't real Philly, but <laughs> South Philly is, is, is corn and. and yeah. Life. And it was at a really interesting time as well. Cause like technically Philly, the um, website was just starting to kick off and the tech scene was just starting to grow. This is like 2010 time. So it was really mm. fun to grow along with uh, the tech scene in Philly at that time. So I guess the important question that I've been asking all season is how are you doing with shelter and, and lockdown and, and uh, tier 12 at this point? Yeah, it's not my favorite time, of course. Um, but generally, I feel like I'm doing OK. Um, I have been traveling a bunch for the last like 10, 12 years, and it's just kind of nice to nest a little bit. Um, obviously, I'd rather be able to go outside and um, get married. I've had that canceled twice. So like, there's there's oh. some downsides for sure. But uh, we'll get there in the end whenever they open stuff back up. Well, besides getting married, what do you all, what do you do? outside when there is not lockdown? What is enjoyable to you that is not tech? Yeah, well, um, I generally don't do tech stuff too much outside of work. I really like to uh, live the rest of my life. So uh, we mentioned creativity a bit, but I do a lot of drawing um, and then um, play with different types of media as well, like collaging and whatnot. I really like being outdoors. Um, I haven't done as much since I moved to London, but um, hiking and camping, all that sort of stuff I'm really into. Um, I like picnics. Um, I like going to art museums. Uh, I like traveling a lot as well. Um, I'm pretty, I don't know, I like to do a lot of different things um, and mix it up a bit. So now you've done a lot of public speaking and I, I'm always pleased, not pleased so much as, as as happily surprised when I find that a public speaker admits they are not comfortable with public speaking. They have public speaking fear. We had Ty on last episode uh, who also said it. How do you how do you fight the fear? Is it just over preparedness or are there other things that you're using? 
Yeah, I mean, ugh. so part of it is exposure. So the more you do it, it's it a little <laughs> bit easier. But I was a little bit concerned about, um, you know, doing this podcast because I don't usually do things that are uh, recorded video. So, um, but yeah, so what do I do? Sometimes I do power poses where I'm like really freaking out. Um, it really is hardest when I first give that talk um, the, for the first time, if I write a brand new one, because I haven't given it yet. I've only practiced it in my head, basically, and out loud a few times. Mm-hmm. So that one's probably where I have the most fear. If I give that talk again, then I'm less afraid of it. Um, hmm, yeah, I'm trying to think of like what my strategies are for getting over it uh, is really just continuing to do it. And it's opened up so many opportunities as well um, that there's a bit of positive feedback that helps you just keep going with it even. So there is some payoff at the end. You get the serotonin bump, right? But before that, it's all fear all the time. Now you said power poses. Oh yeah, so there's like, uh, you know, <laughs> Wonder Woman and things like that uh, in the bathroom beforehand, so you can like center yourself and get ready and you know feel powerful before you go on stage. You'd said that you know initially when you started out you'd over script and, and you'd all but just read script. How how have you gotten away from what what techniques have you used to be a little more impromptu in nature? Yeah. Um, so the first keynote I gave, I felt like a lot of pressure on making sure that it was inspiring and whatever else, not just informative. And I wanted it to be like perfect. Mm-hmm. So I spent, I basically wrote a 30 page paper to write that one, which is a little bit overkill, but I spent like two months prepping for it. And, you know, it was really uh, pedantic about slides, all that sort of stuff too. But then the second keynote I wrote about being creative, I only had two weeks to write it because um, I hadn't quite chosen my topic up front. And then I eventually chose it. And then I forced myself to go through it quickly. So it was the two opposite ends of the spectrum on that. And it, I actually felt like the creativity, the creative technologist talk was a bit better than the Android uh, is the world phone talk because I wasn't so scripted with it. Um, I was just trying to think of what inspires me and how I build my creative practice and what I had done throughout the years to um, make myself like bring more creativity into my life. Um, There's also like this really great uh, video series from um, Google developer, something Google develop or something. Uh, it was a, a partnership with speechless and um, it's two women who are doing back and forth for um, improv and telling you how to basically write your scripts um, through just speaking. So now what I do is a mix between sketch noting to get like the overall idea for the talk. And then um, I do some thumbnails. I do um, speak and record it and speed it up so I can hear it and then turn that into slides. It's kind of a iterative process, but I spend I still spend a lot of time prepping for it, but it's in a different way. And it's not like I have to have the perfect words. I, I, now I spend more time on structuring the story and making sure that the takeaways are clear instead of what am I going to say each time a slide comes up. I was uh, very blessed in my first year of undergraduate to be at a, a college that required a year of public speaking, as a, a semester of public speaking, as well as composition. We had a, a teacher who was a, an improv nut, and she would have quotations in we basically had seven minutes, three minutes to prepare and four minutes to speak on whatever quotation she picked for us that class period. And we all joked that if you got out of her class alive, so to speak, you could crack open a fortune cookie and talk about it for seven minutes. Yeah, I wish I had that uh, class because I still feel like I freeze up a bit if I don't have at least some bullet point notes to help me uh, for something. And the whole idea of taking improv class completely terrifies me. And you, you said that you use mind maps as well for this. 
Yeah, but it, so usually I do the mind map is more of the, okay, what do I want to talk about? What's the new topic for the talk? Um, okay. Sometimes I'll use it for the content itself, but usually I'll do a sketch note, which is kind of more of the, this is the takeaways I want the audience to have at the end of it. And then I'll go from there into slides and story and things like that. I think it was uh, Lara Martin who also does a lot of sketch noting. And that's a very interesting point that you brought up. I think this uh, particular topic or like at least sketch noting has picked up space in the last few years. Um, how did you actually get into mm. sketch noting uh, as a like maybe start using it for your talks and, and preparing for your talks? The day I started, well, basically I was at a conference with Chuki Chan and she was sketch noting, and I was like, what are you doing? That looks cool. Um, so uh, from that day, we both started sketch noting because she had taken a workshop just prior to that. And then that was her first time out actually practicing it. So I started on the same day, that was February 2015-ish sometime. Um, and then at the time I was just using it for conferences I was going to and speaking at, but then uh, it made the jump to my work notebook and I keep very detailed work notes about like feelings and things I'm working on, things I'm learning, that sort of stuff. Uh, and then that turned into essentially like a zine or a sketch notebook. So I got to practice constantly. Uh, there's also, a, there's the sketch note handbook and then there's sketch note workbook. That one talks about using it for everything like um, your travel journals and things like that. So then I started opening up where I use it. Uh, I still use it every day in my work journal. Um, I also do it in my personal journal. I do kind of a bullet journal-y sort of thing. Um, it ebbs and flows, but often I'll keep a bullet journal. And yeah, I just tend to use it everywhere. Um, one of my friends says, I think in sketch notes, and that's pretty true. That's, uh, that's very interesting. I think I've also seen Chuki posting something on Twitter and she kind of does it weekly or something, uh, which uh, probably Lara was also following. That's how I experienced this. Um, and I think you also have um, a website dedicated to this. Uh, I think it's called sketchnoting.tech. Yep, yep. So I started that. Yeah, I started that, uh, I don't know, six months ago or so. Um, so it's got, uh, I'm not only doing sketch notes. That really spurred me on to getting better at drawing because I wanted to have them look better. Um, so I've been taking an illustration course, for example, this semester. So I'm like documenting how I'm um, learning about illustration. And then I also have a bunch of my older sketch notes up there. Uh, so I have a micro blog for snippets. So the things that just inspire me on the day to day. And then I have a longer format, um, you know, words behind um, things I post blog as well. For our listeners, we'll put the link of this uh, sketch noting um, website that you have. There's like a very good content. People should check it out. Oh, thank you. I was just going to talk about the, the illustration because you talked about drawing on the right side of the brain by Betty Edwards. And I, I, I was immediately taken by this because I've been trying to draw since I was a kid and I've never felt that I can draw. Can you talk about some of the, the method in that and, and how it helped you basically draw better? Yeah, definitely. I really love that book. I've read it th through three times. The first time I picked it up was in 2005 and I was also doing some um, draw along books at the time. And I don't feel like I got super far with it, but then I switched to photography and just did that for eight years and then learned more mm -hmm. about composition and stuff. And then I picked it back up again, like I said, when I wanted to learn about drawing when I was doing sketch noting. So 2015 was the second time I read it through. Um, and that one I feel like had a lot 
uh, more transformative <laughs> thing there. And then I did another sabbatical in 2017 and reread it then too. And um, the drawing has gotten even better since then. Uh, so the whole premise of the book is everybody can draw, um, but you've been beating yourself up since you were a child. Um, and you have these like really um, strong symbols you use. So like a house will be a square with a uh, triangle, triangle on top. It's just what you've been drawing since you were a kid. And then your left brain just takes over and does that. And it's like, cool, we drew a house. You don't need to do anything else. Uh, but the right brain is the one that really likes to go in and see all the complexity and get lost in it. And, you know, when you're programming, it's like that flow um, thing that you can access. So it, she gives you a lot of ways to get your left brain out of the way um, by boring it essentially uh, that'll let you dive into the more creative flow side of things. So like turning something upside down so you can see the left brain's like, what are you doing? Why is that upside down? That is so stupid. And then eventually it just shuts up and then you're drawing upside down and uh, the thing looks like the thing you want it to at the end. Yeah, I believe the phrase you used was it bores your inner critic. Yeah. yeah. I really could use that predominantly. I mean, I haven't talked about it on the show. I suffer from mild depression, and that is, the, that is the, the loudest inner critic that you get in your mind. It's the one that's always saying doom and gloom. And if this mechanism is a good way to basically have one side of your brain slow down the other side of your brain, that's, uh, it's quite a fine there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I really, really value this aspect of my life now. Cause it's like, um, it just helps you calm your mind. Like if you're feeling stressed out about something, often I'll just go draw or especially if, well, back when I was programming, if I was um, stressed out about a programming problem, uh, I would go draw a pretty diagram or something like that. And it's just like always shifting away from the thing that's stressing you out right now and approaching it in a different way. So it gives you more tools um, to try and approach that problem differently. Yeah, another version of this that I actually employ, I don't do exactly sketch noting, but it's more or less like doodling. But it's, it's, it's quite random. It's basically emptying your mind as much as you can and then putting it on paper and then you're like, okay, now everything is, is clear and now you go back to solving whatever problems you have. That's also is something that I've seen has worked out, at least for me. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting because there's like a TED talk on it, but apparently you retain 26% more um, content if you're doodling while you're listening to something like at a meeting or something. Uh, that doesn't even include sketchnoting. So I feel like with sketchnoting on top of it, you're probably retaining far more because I find that I don't usually have to go back to my notes too much just because it's kind of been burnt into my brain. All those teachers that told you back then, don't doodle while you're in class. They were wrong. They were wrong. A lot of the talks you've been doing, I you started out right off by saying that you get excited by solving real world problems. And this this means a lot to me because I worked in a series of tech jobs doing this app and that app. And then I got hired by a hospital. And I felt like the code I'm doing here is possibly going to save someone's life. And that made the job feel more um, deep to me. It made, it made it feel more important. Can you talk a little bit about that, that desire to, to help and some of the things that you've done? Yeah, definitely. Um, I find that I'm a bit of an idealist as well. And I try to find something that aligns really well. I've worked with uh, large corporations and stuff like that, that didn't quite align with my long-term mission. Um, and I found that I didn't stay too awful long at those places just because it didn't quite motivate me in the ways uh, that I wanted to be motivated. Like, yes, I was learning thing in the tech world, 
world. That was good. You know, more depth, more exposure, whatever, if that's fine. But at some point I really wanted to do something more meaningful. Um, one of the more meaningful jobs I had was, um, installing solar in Tanzania. I think at some point you'll have Anise Davis on, uh, the podcast as well. And Mm -hmm. so I worked with her for a time there. Uh, but what we were doing was rewriting business apps in Android. It wasn't like the most difficult, uh, technology thing to do, but what we were doing was working offline and helping people install and maintain solar systems that would bring, uh, power to people who hadn't had it before in uh, really rural villages or was giving them uh, a bit more power during the day whenever there were power cuts and things like that. Uh, So that was a really meaningful one. And I got to travel the world quite a bit for that as well and work with people in many different time zones. I really enjoyed that. Um, And then the place I'm working at now, Kinnancarta. So we work with a lot of different uh, companies in a lot of different verticals, social responsibility, all that sort of stuff. Um, So there's a lot of opportunity to um, work on things that matter. Um, Now I'm not really on projects anymore because I'm now the head of engineering, but now I'm focusing more on building the community at uh, the company, which is what I used to do in the community for like Android meetups and things like that. So uh, it's a new Mm. way to use the same skills that I've been building up for the last uh, 10 years or so. so. You mentioned that you are uh, right now the head of engineering. So like I'm, I'm guessing you're obviously in considering even the past experiences from different roles that you've done, you've kind of like amassed some sort of learning that, that you, if you would want to like share with the listeners that would basically help them in their career in some sort of way. Okay. Yeah. So um, if I think back on my career, um, at first I started out with Brett. So I did like C router code. I did Java backends. I did uh, Ruby and Python Django all over the map, completely different stuff. Uh, and then I found Android and then I stayed there for 10 years. Um, so I did the classic breadth and then depth and then I've gone breadth again. Um, so since uh, I joined this company, I was a tech lead in, on lots of different projects and now the head of engineering. Um, but the things that I've found is uh, you really want to make sure that you're always growing and finding things that are interesting to you, either from, um, you know, community and, um, you know, like more of a culture aspect, um, but often trying to grow your technical skills as well, right? So um, trying to mix it up and make sure you get that breadth, especially if you're looking for something more like a technical leadership position down the line. Um, If I had only done Android the entire time, I think I would struggle a little bit more um, with leading um, engineers across the spectrum. You are the head of engineering for a company. And I I wanted to frame this uh, correctly. As a woman, in a high position in a company, you have probably conquered a lot of stumbling blocks along the way to get there. And you comment that you're frustrated by the slow pace that I feel like technology, which changes every day, still is being very slow in this process. Can you highlight some of what you feel is some of these roadblocks that slows down women from being as successful? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, well, so it's all over the map. So just the way that women in power are perceived, like the more powerful you get, the less likable you are. And there's lots of studies around that, um, you know, um, and then just people tend to react more negatively if you're saying things with um, assertiveness. So you have to temper it a little bit. So it's everything from your day-to-day interactions to structural things that make it a lot harder. Um, I'm quite stubborn. 
So I think that because I've just been like, well, you're not going to push me out. I want to be here. Um, you know, I continue to try new things. Anytime I get super frustrated somewhere, I'll find either a way I can change it where I am or I'll look for something new. Um, but what's interesting here is because I am now in a position of power, um, I feel more empowered to speak out. So when I'm seeing things, so uh, behind the scenes, I'm sponsoring people all the time and making sure that their names are coming up for new opportunities. Um, I'm looking at the hiring process and things like that and challenging the places that it should be better. Um, so it's nice that now that is actually technically my job to make it so that we can hire and maintain um, more diverse populations inside of our engineering org. So uh, it's a pleasure and an honor and I'm really enjoying it. Also making sure that the culture is... Uh, welcoming and psychologically safe and doesn't push people out is super important to me as well. Yeah, one of the comments that you made, and I always try to pull a quote out from the chapter that's not the quote they highlight. You said the only people who shouldn't speak are the ones who can't keep sexual jokes out of the talks or the people who are working against diversity and inclusion. These people create a hostile environment. Mm -hmm. And I really I, I, I agree with that. And and I'm pleased that this show has been able to have on uh, ChickyCon and, and is having Ennis on in, in uh, two episodes. So. Uh, it's it's working to basically say that the conversation needs to be there until the point that we don't need to have the conversation anymore. Mm. Yeah. Yep. And one thing I've been doing at my job, uh, they haven't stopped me. So that's good. Uh, I came up with like management training because we didn't really have any internally. So um, mine is very anti uh, racist and feminist at its core. So like each module has, okay, cool. We're talking about one-on-ones. Okay. We'll talk about power structures here. And you'll um, understand that like people who are from disadvantaged backgrounds might be a little bit more scared and how to pull them out and make them feel comfortable. Just things like that. And like how to do better feedback, how to de-bias your feedback, all that sort of stuff. Slowly we're working through the minority letters. I mean, we're, we're getting more openness toward LGBTQ Um it's it's slow and I wish it wasn't so slow and I wish the fight back wasn't as horrible as it is because I've been in enough toxic workplaces where I'm the one who's championing for other people because the only reason I can do that is I can get away with it as the cis male that mm -hmm. that that well I guess at least they'll listen to me when I say don't say that yeah I mean even uh recently like there was a sexual joke and I was like hey uh male head of engineering peer can you go deal with this so it's not just me calling it out like I'm more than happy to do it but I wanted mm -hmm. you know to help encourage other people also to help fight back and it worked well nice so let's let's go back and talk about some of the uh, the, the talks that you've done mm -hmm. um, some of your talks you say you've given nine ten times can you talk about the evolution of a talk as you've done it repeatedly and are there are there pros to that are there cons to that yeah I mean it's a, definitely a balance between um, everybody's seen it and you want your um, presentation to be quite good. So I feel like the first time I give the talk is never the best version of it because I'm too nervous. I haven't quite given it before. I don't know what lines will work and what won't. Um, and then if I watch it afterwards, then I'll be able to see, well, okay, well, that didn't quite work. I should cut that. I should expand on that. So um, what I tend to do is go back and revisit those talks and find the places that uh, are more valuable and try and expand them and make it better over time. Um, I usually like to give it about maybe five times. It depends because like if you're um, if we were able to travel the world and, and you do like eight conferences in a row, it sounds like maybe I'm being lazy by doing the same talk over and over again. But if you do it within a three month span, 
then it's like, okay, cool. Well, you know, these are new people who are seeing it for the first time. And that experience Mm -hmm. of seeing it online is different than seeing it in person too. So um, if you only give it the one time and then they can only ever watch it on the um, TV, well, on the YouTube instead um, after that, then, you know, there's that balance, right? Between giving people the opportunity to see it live and improving it over time. One thing that I have also noticed is that at least when, when people ask me that a certain talk is given multiple times, my point is that the technology is also evolving over a period of time. If it is a, like say tech talk, and then that makes sense because by the time say you see the, the last version of it, it's already been updated every single time. So that's also one thing yeah. that kind of comes up now and then for tech, tech-based talks, I would say specifically. Yeah, and um, one other aspect to that is I tend to choose talks that are a little bit more evergreen now um, that aren't tied to a specific tech that uh, may go out of fashion soon. So then, you know, if I'm talking about creativity or I'm talking about being intentional with your time, uh, then that gives you, um, you know, tips you're going to be able to use for several years. So it doesn't really go uh, stale. And there's always new stuff you can learn, more things to add to it over time. Yeah, that talk is pretty good, by the way. Like, I think we should add it in the in the uh, show notes for this. But basically, that talk is, uh, I've watched it. I, I would suggest others to also go and watch that talk. Thank you. Did you go up the ladder in the company that you are lead uh, that you are head of engineering for, or did you come into that company as head of engineering? Yeah, this company I was hired as a tech lead, and then um, while I was here, I did the uh, management training things and things like that outside of um, the projects I was leading, uh, and then uh, got promoted to head of engineering. Because one of the things you talk about is how to hit the ground running in less than six months when you're entering a company, how to be valuable earlier on. Can you talk about some of the some of the tips there? Yeah, definitely. So um, there's this book that I recommend, which is uh, The First 90 Days, which is all about trying to get to that value really quickly. Um, so the idea is you try and analyze the organization. You find the cultural historians, the people who know a lot about the company and um, you get to know them and you get to know a lot of stuff about the background for why things are the way they are. You come up with learning plans of the things you need to be effective in your um, company. Um, If you set up goals like shorter term goals and then you build up momentum and have a virtuous cycle instead of um, the opposite of that where it's like failure after failure. So um, it just really helps you be more intentional thinking about, okay, cool. What do I need to do to make me effective at this job and to um, continue to grow? Mm -hmm. Now, I'm assuming as head of engineering that you've done some of the interviews or you've possibly been the person who said the yay or nay on the hires. Yeah, yeah, often. (laughs) Are you typically on the lower end of the uh, of the interview process or are you more just the the yay nay at the end? Uh, It depends. So I have been at the pre-screening phases to see if people made sense. Um, that was really more when I was lead um, and we we're about to do a hiring push soon, but it's kind of a mix. It, uh, I'm either at the beginning or I'm at the end. Depends on the seniority of the person we're talking to, whether or not I was part of the official thing, or if I came in just to help them understand the culture better, give them more of a flavor of what the company's like. Uh, so I've done both of those roles. I, w- I want to ask you a, a question that I came up with on the previous show, because this is um, sort of turning things around. One of the dreaded questions that comes up in an interview is, do you have any questions for me? Mm. And I'm curious, 
because this is a question that is probably something that you're going to ask. What kind of questions would you like to be asked? What are the things that you'd like to hear this person have interest in? Yeah, I mean, um, I tend to find that most engaged people are asking things like, what's the culture like? What? How um, am I going to be assigned to, because we're at a consulting firm, how am I going to be assigned to projects? How am I going to grow? Um, how can I continue to grow with the company? And just um, having a little bit more insight into what they value and what's interesting for them. Uh, I'm happy to take questions across the entire spectrum if they want to talk about benefits all the way through um, uh, career progression. I have a question uh, that is coming from me, I would say, basically, because I kind of uh, I've experienced this at a couple of companies uh, when I work with them or like as a freelancer or even as a full time employee is that when, that the that the hiring department in general or like even people at the top, they kind of start talking about that. It's really hard for them to find um, women in tech or like, say, even diversity uh, based hires also. Is that actually something that you have experienced once you got to this point and, and you started hiring people? Yeah. So uh, controversial. I think you're being lazy if you can't find anyone because you're not looking. Um, but yeah, so we are out there. Um, and I'll give you a story of one of the times uh, that Chidi Chan and I actually, like we did a takeover of DroidCon New York in 2015. Uh, we decided we wanted to up the number of women speakers. Uh, we didn't tell anyone, we just started doing it. So we went in LinkedIn, we tried to find every single lady face we could um, that had Android attached to it. We would send Twitter DMs, we would find them on LinkedIn, send them messages there. What we did is set up a Google Doc um, so we could help. We Basically, we were like, we'll mentor you through this whole process. We'll tell you how to do the abstract. We'll give you feedback on it. Um, we're also more than happy to help you um, f build out your talks if you're accepted. Um, so we found a few hundred, actually, uh, women. And then uh, not all of them um, were part of the application process for this, right? But we ended up with 20% women speakers at that particular conference. Uh, because we went through, we found the people. We offered to build a community with them and help them out. Um, and then around the same time, there was a Slack uh, that is also uh, ended up being the home for all of those women in Android. And um, I think there's like 250 known to me women in the Android world. Uh, and we have a place where we can chat, which is quite nice. So that that whole research led to a longstanding community. Um, so you can build your own networks, you can go find people. It's the problem is people are like, well, mm -hmm. I just put a job out out there and no women apply. And well, you can't just put a job out ad out there and hope for the best. You actually have to go build relationships. And maybe mm -hmm. someone will be, uh, you have to maybe talk to them for two, three years to eventually pull them into whatever company they'll come join you for. But it's really about those relationships and building them instead of just spraying and praying and hoping for the best. And of course, with everything closed and there not being any talks, this is really putting a damper on the real main way that people have been networking to meet other people. Yeah, networking has been tough for me, too, because I do often meet people through those conferences and meetups and things like that. And I just haven't really been reaching out. It's been more strengthening the relationships I have instead of building new ones. I, I'm a remote developer to begin with. And when this entire transition occurred, a lot of people found themselves at home on Zoom all the time. And it's it's interesting. Um, in your position, are you predominantly working at an office or are you remote? So we've been remote for the last year um, since the pandemic hit, uh, but predominantly we were in the office. I usually worked one day from uh, home a week and then um, we would be at client site usually until Friday and then everybody would be on on Friday. But everybody's been remote uh, and that's quite difficult for 
you know, building that community and making it still feel quite cohesive. You don't see people around the floor as much. So in, you know, in the consulting company, they're in just their project team. So they don't see the rest of the company um, like they would have before. So it's really a struggle um, to try and build and keep that community vibe going. So from a remote point of view with, with the lockdown, how do you keep yourself disciplined and re- remaining on track for a day? So what I tend to do is at the beginning of the week, I'll spend an hour or so in the morning um, trying to figure out what I want to accomplish for the week. So I'll come up with wind themes, the high level things I want to get done, because I know as a head of engineering, I'm often in meetings most of most days. So you don't get as much time um, to work on deeply on things. um, Sometimes I I do take Wednesdays and make sure nobody bothers me on Wednesdays so I can have some heads down time, some thinking time or doing bigger chunks of work. Uh, But on Monday, I'll figure out what I want to accomplish over the week. Uh, I'll look at my schedule as well. Um, And like I mentioned, I do a little bit of bullet journaling. um, So that often will help me uh, keep organized throughout the week as well. Um, And then uh, I'm a co-head of engineering, actually. So we meet every morning um, to talk about our days and make sure that we are both going to be tackling the most important stuff. uh, And then do our stuff and then come back and meet the next morning and repeat. So I just kind of always iteratively find out exactly what I want to be focusing on. You mentioned bullet journey. Can you like give a little bit of information on that? Like for our listeners, if they don't know about this. Yeah. So the simplest version of bullet journaling is just basically doing a dot for a to-do list item and a dash for like, this is a note for the day. So you can go from just words with the dot and the dash um, to things that are like really pretty and fancy and hand-drawn lettering and um, really complicated layouts. So if you look at Pinterest, uh, there's all sorts of different layouts you could get from there. Uh, but really, it can be just very simplistic. It's here's my to-do list for the day. Here are some of the things that happen just so you have a record of how your life is evolving, especially when every day kind of feels the same a little bit. Um but yeah, uh, and to your question around how do I structure my day? So the living room is kind of my office. <laughs> so um, it's a little difficult because um, this is where I spend most of my time these days. There's the bedroom, wake up, and then come here. And I'm here all day long. Luckily, there's a second bedroom for my partner. So he's got his own space. Um, but if we were both in the same space, that would be very, very difficult because we're both in a lot of meetings. Your chapter in the book says that your process used to be that you would get up, you'd meditate and run. Are you still able Hmm. to do that? So uh, I haven't been running as much. I have been doing um, uh, like strength training. Sorry, strength training on Zoom. Um, I was doing it in the park, but it's really cold and lockdown has gotten Mm -hmm. uh, stronger. So not doing that anymore. Uh, I haven't been as good at meditating, which I'm quite missing, actually. Um, But if I am feeling a bit more stressed, then I'll sit down and do it. But it's not part of my day to day as much anymore. But yeah, I'll wake up early. Uh, I'll either create or exercise and then I'll do that before work. And then I start work. I ask what style of meditation you use. Uh, it's just like the Calm app or Headspace apps, depending on whichever one I'm signed up for at the time. Mm-hmm. Do you have any that you recommend? Um, yeah, I just like to do the dailies from both of those. <laughs> so I'm kind of lazy. I don't really search for uh, different content through there. Okay, Corey. So we are going to be like changing gears a little bit and and go back to the topic like related to uh, because you have been doing a lot of like these talks and keynotes and everything. Uh, maybe you could give us a, a bit of a rundown on like what is your current 
like existing uh, uh, prep process that you would recommend people to do? Yeah, um, well, what I tend to do is do a little bit of mind mapping to figure out what I want to talk about. If it already is a new talk topic, uh, then I'll tend to do a sketch note, which is, okay, cool. I'm just going to sit down and do whatever comes to mind and get an idea for what I want those takeaways to be. Uh, after that, I'll look at different areas that I want to expand on. And then I'll do a lot of little thumbnails. This is all usually paper drawn like on a piece of paper um, for the different types of things I want to cover in that particular talk. Um, at some point, I'll start speaking and do, recording it in quick time and then uh, kind of speed it up if I can to when I listen back to see which things I liked and what I didn't like, turn those into new slides and thumbnails. Uh, and I do a bit of an iterative process like that. I don't tend to do um, too many bullet points or speaker notes anymore, um, but I used to do them quite heavily. That's uh, that's very interesting. I think uh, initially when I was doing a bit of public speaking, I also had speaker notes, but uh, I eventually uh, tried to get rid of them. And, and now I feel more confident speaking because I don't have to focus on the speaker notes anymore. So that's something that's that's very interesting for me that oh, other people are also doing this. That's nice. Yeah. I also got rid of the speaker notes myself, but that was predominantly because I had no choice. My vision got to the point where I couldn't actually switch between seeing the audience, the slides, and my notes at the same time. So I was like, well, I'm going to have to get rid of the notes and just continue from there. Yeah. Or sometimes I take the glasses off and then I can't see anything and I just sort of <laughs> go blind and then I find out that I've gone seven minutes over. A, 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 a good, I guess a common question that uh, people have, and I've, I've heard this from like people, those who are also starting up uh, in public speaking and even like, say, for example, those who are seasoned speakers, uh, something that people have asked is that, they are doing these conference talks. Um, it could be tech, it could be non-tech. Uh, but one thing that maybe you could comment on, maybe give us some more idea on, is that how do you go from being a normal, uh, like a conference talk person to like actually getting highlighted as a keynote speaker, which I guess has a different dynamics and, and also probably has something extra to be done. Yeah, um, I'm not 100% sure like what had switched for me, but I'll try and deconstruct it. So uh, I did decide that I want to do a keynote like that year. I was like, I'm going to do a keynote. Um, so then uh, what I did was I sent keynote colon Android is the world phone with a little bit of abstract underneath it. So that was kind of my uh, bold move there. I was like, I am proposing a keynote instead of being asked for one. So that led to them actually asking me to do it, which was cool. Um, but I don't know if that's going to work for everyone as you know the way to then jump from regular conference talks to keynotes. Um, but I think one of the most important things about a keynote is it's a bit more broadly applicable. So it's not going to necessarily be a deep dive on a particular technology. Um, like we talked about earlier, I mean, technology moves at a really rapid pace. So um, things are going to change a lot. It's going to be a lot harder to do a keynote specifically on like a deep dive on a specific library or whatever. Uh, but if it is more meta skills, talking about creativity, talking about intentionality, things like that, those are the ones I've been chatting about. Um, that tends to have a broader appeal to the audience. And if you're looking at more general tech conferences instead of something like an Android conference, you know, you're gonna have to be even more uh, meta and zoomed out whenever you're choosing those topics, make sure that it appeals to a wide audience. So, so more generalized uh, version of, of talks uh, are the ones that should be submitted for keynotes if people actually want to apply for them. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, so at the Android talks, there's sometimes history of Android and those can be quite interesting, yeah. right? And those are a bit more general too. So it's not super deep on a particular technology. Um, yeah, I mean, 
that's just a hand wavy rule, but yeah, meta topics seem to do a little bit better and have a bit more of a broad appeal, I think. Hopefully everyone gets this and, and applies for keynotes. Uh, that would be nice to see. We actually, so this is something that I've I, I experienced is that we don't actually have these meta talks as much. Uh, I know Joe, who was also on the show, he has given some talks uh, that are, he's been in the Android conference, but he's not talking about Android. Uh, he's talking about meta stuff and also like something very, that appeals to the, um, to the wider audience. And that's something that we would probably want to see more. So I hope people, those who are listening to this podcast, they start applying for those. This is something that I would also want to see. And hopefully we have more of these. Yeah, it's nice seeing more. Um, I don't like the term soft skills, but like core skills, like, you know, people skills sort of talks that help people um, think about things in a different way. I was just about to ask about that. I remember you saying in the in the chapter that you don't like soft skills as a as a uh, as a name. Uh, but then again, you've talked so much about mixing the creativity with the technical and talking uh, a little bit about how art and tech are slowly merging. Uh, can you talk a little bit mm -hmm. more about uh, from the point of view of being the storyteller as opposed to the lecturer? Yeah, I, I don't feel like I'm a great storyteller in general. That's one of those skills I'm trying to build up right now. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so what's interesting about technology and creativity is if you think about how an artist worked and how a software engineer worked, there's a lot of overlap there because you're um, you're taking things to an abstract level. You're um, you're iterating, so it's a bit agile. You're you don't just like draw the thing and it's done. Like the masterpieces we've seen, they take years sometimes to create. So there's a ton of preparatory sketches. There's a ton of thought that go into it, and it's an iterative process that gets to that final masterpiece. Same sort of thing in software engineering. Do you still have? Uh, I any chance to do any, any academia? Have you had any chance to do anything like a creative writing class? So right now I'm taking an illustration class this semester. So um, it's interesting because we're going through a bunch of different types of illustration. So the first class was reportage, where you essentially are a reporter going and drawing what's happening at a particular location. Mm -hmm. um, then we did book covers and now we're doing inner book illustrations. Mm -hmm. um, so this class can go through April. So it's really interesting to see, you know, the types of uh, work that people do. And then we get the same assignment, but everybody does something completely differently. Um, and it's really nice to see everybody's styles emerge. And that's one of those things I'm still trying to find is like my style. I feel like I'm good at copying other people's stuff mm -hmm. and my sketch notes feel very cohesive and you can see them and you're like, okay, that's a Corey sketch note. But in my drawing style is all over the map because um, I copy a bunch of other people's stuff. So I'm still trying to find what is it that makes me me. There's so much more to discuss, but we just don't have time in the podcast. Now, if you not only want to hear, but actually see the whole interview, we're going to post that to YouTube in just a few weeks. Corey, this has been a wonderful walk down a technical and non-technical adventure. We've been able to talk about all of the advantages in public speaking, and it's just been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was great to talk about creativity and diversity and all that sort of stuff that I'm really passionate about. Next episode, we're going to have Fernando Quejas on the show. He's a software engineer and a, dev a developer advocate. He's a huge fan of tech in general. And as mentioned in two episodes, we're going to have Anise Davis on. And we want your questions for Anise. If you do have any questions, please email us at podcast at drewenderlich.com. But in the meantime, uh, you can reach Corey at at Corey underscore Ladislaw. Mm-hmm. Um, and that'll be in the show notes if you want to make sure you get the spelling right. C-O-R-E-Y, correct? Correct, yeah. 
Nishant is Nis Rules everywhere, N-I-S-R-U-L-Z. I am Podcast Drew, P-O-D-C-A-S-T-D-R-U. You can find us on Twitter sometimes. Please be our friends. In the meantime, we're going to head back to the Emerald Castle. Ray, back to you. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.